one thing about our new worship schedule is that there's ample time for uh, caffeine intake. I confess I might have slightly overdone it this morning, so <laughs> I'll do my best to not talk too quickly, which I know is a perpetual challenge for me, but bear with me. And please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O oh God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, today we make a big shift. The first, the last uh, number of weeks in the season after Epiphany, we were looking at the beginning, that first chapter of the gospel according to Mark. Again, this is uh, lectionary year B, and so this is a Markan gospel year. And as we opened up and talked about Mark, we, we, we heard a message of metanoia, of repentance, and we heard about the great coming kingdom of God and the moral authority that Jesus speaks with that is a source of moral authority for us even today. Uh, there's a message that's immediate, that, that draws us in, and it's also a message that overturns some of the dichotomies of clean and unclean that we find in our society. Uh, and, but today, we fast forward from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 14 as we enter the season of Lent. Now, during that time frame, Jesus has continued to heal and teach and carry out his ministry in Galilee, again, up in the northern part of Israel. And then he turns his face towards Jerusalem and begins walking down. Well, in chapter 14, he is just about there. Now is the time for the great confrontation, for the great throwdown between Jesus and the authorities. This is it. This is where all the building tension is going to. Can you feel it yet? Our story takes place in a house in Bethany. Bethany is very close, just over the hill from Jerusalem, uh, even within the greater Jerusalem boundaries. And the disciples gather in the house of Simon, Simon who's called a leper. Now again, remember, leprosy in the ancient world uh, would, have been a, would have been used to describe any number of skin ailments. Clearly, whatever Simon had uh, was a relatively minor one because he was not in a leper colony, but in his own house. But nevertheless, the fact that he was marked as a leper meant that he was still an outcast. He was someone who was on the outside, and it's appropriate that Jesus would choose to spend this meal with someone that society rejected, but Jesus embraced So there they are in the house, gathered around, reclining on couches and likely eating some olives and some bread uh, and probably a glass of wine when there was a knock on the door. And Simon gets up from his couch and goes over and opens the door and there standing before him is a woman dressed in very fine clothes and carrying with her a jar. And the woman comes in, looks around the room And recognizes Jesus and walks over to him. And she takes the cork off this jar. And as soon as she does, the smell from the perfume begins to fill the room. And she turns it over to anoint Jesus. But uh, the, 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 the neck of the jar is so narrow that when she begins to tip it over, just a little bit of this oil is dripping out. And that's not sufficient for her. So she uses all of her strength to break off the neck of the jar so she can pour out the entire contents over Jesus' head. And there he is with this oily nard falling all over his head, all onto his clothes, and the smell just infuses the entire room. But one of the disciples sees this, 
Perhaps he was someone who had been in the market not long before looking for perfume for his wife or someone else he cared about. He knew how expensive this perfume was. That jar of perfume that she just poured out was worth $10,000. That's one expensive jar of perfume. What a waste. She could have used just a little bit of it even and anointed it, but instead she wastes the entire jar pouring it all over Jesus' head. This makes a mockery of all the stuff that Jesus claims to care about. I mean, after all, these disciples likely left their possessions behind to follow Jesus. You know, Jesus has been preaching about helping the poor and, and standing with them in solidarity. And here is a $10,000 uh, thing of perfume that's just egregiously wasted to pour over Jesus' head. What nonsense. Why didn't she sell those contents and give the money to the poor? That would have been the Christian thing. These disciples got angry with this woman. And I have to say, when I've read this passage uh, over the course of my life and looked it through, usually I've sided with the disciples on this one. <laughs> I mean, now, part of that is my own personal bias. You see, I, when I was growing up in the 80s, way back then in the 80s, um, when I was growing up then, you know, my father was an entrepreneur. And uh, one thing about being an entrepreneur is that business has its ups and its downs. And during the 80s, was a down uh, for, my, for my father and my family, and some of which because of the natural cycles of business and some of which uh, because of the savings and loan crisis and cheating on behalf of certain individuals. But anyway, um, So I remember very clearly growing up that money was a big issue in the family. There was never enough of it. Uh, and my parents were very concerned about making ends meet uh, when I was a child. And so there was this almost cloud that hung over the house. You know, one thing about children, children uh, rarely pick up on specifics, but they can pick up on atmospheres that are going on around them. And there was this atmosphere in the house that there was never enough money because there wasn't. And it was only compounded by the fact that we lived in a nice community. Uh, and this was, of course, the go-go 80s. And so it seemed as though all of our neighbors were, you know, making money hand over fist, where in our household it was a very different situation. And so this was, this was sort of the background for when I first read the Gospels for myself, one of the things that resonated with me most deeply was Jesus' statements on money. Because again, I had, I had seen how uh, spiritually weakening and destroying uh, concerns over money could be, valid though they, valid though they might be, uh, how much concerns over money can tear you apart. And so as a kid reading that through, I was like, yes, I, you know, Jesus' perspective on money is one I embrace. Um, and so again, when I saw this passage as a, as a kid, I was like, yes, those disciples are right. This is a total waste of money and extravagance. To this day, I'm someone who still, like, things like, you know, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous back in the day or, like, Keeping Up with the Kardashians, I can't stand those shows because of just the, uh, this just egregious extravagance that's thrown out there. I'm like, this is, I, every fiber of my being just, mm, just, like, wretches when I see it. That's just me personally. I don't want to critique those of you who are, <laughs> who are big fans of the Kardashians and company. Um. So, yeah, so I wrestled with this passage. And that's why it was helpful for me this past week to try and delve a little bit more deeply into it, to try and understand what on earth is going on here. Can I, can I actually figure out why Jesus has the reaction he does to this waste of all that expensive perfume? Well, the evangelist Mark, gospel writer Mark, has, uses a variety of rhetorical devices in his gospel. One of the best known is the so-called Markin sandwich. 
the Mark and Sandwich. This is where Mark likes to uh, take two different stories and sort of weave them together. So there's a start of a story, then some of the story interpolated, and then another story after it. And then, like, the first story gets finished at the end. The sort of Mark and Sandwich. It comes up throughout Mark as a way to heighten the drama. Well, of course, this, this is a classic example of this Mark and Sandwich we see here. The passage begins with the chief priests and the scribes plotting the death of Jesus. Then we see this story with, in Simon's house. And then we see this plot again, how it's going to be carried out, because Judas went to them to betray him. Throughout the Gospel of Mark, there's this theme where the disciples don't get it. The disciples are always slow on the uptake. But you, reading this through, get it, because you see the Mark and Sandwich. Jesus gets it, and this woman with the alabaster jar gets it. This confrontation that's coming up in the next few days is not just a confrontation of great powers. It's going to end in Jesus dying. He's going to lose out. He's going to be dead, and it's going to be bad and ugly. Jesus gets it, but somehow the disciples don't, don't quite wrap their heads around it. Maybe they want to avoid that reality, which I can't blame them for. Maybe they, don't, maybe they think in, in their minds that somehow Jesus will find a way out, that he'll be able to defeat the Romans, that he'll start some great revolution. Who knows what's going through their heads, but for some reason right there, they don't see what's going on, but this woman sees it. Jesus is about to die. He won't be there very much longer. My parents, uh, in the early 2000s, uh, ended up buying a condominium in southern Florida. And that's where they were going to retire to. And it was a great point in their life because they had a chance to go down there and they absolutely loved Naples, Florida. Uh, they loved the weather. They loved the shops and the restaurants. Uh, but most especially, they loved the people that they met there. Uh, for my parents, uh, again, and my father in particular, made some incredibly close friends in those years they had uh, in Naples, Florida. It really was a meaningful place for them. And after my father got diagnosed with cancer, and as his cancer was progressing, it got to a point where he was so frail and so weak and his immune system so compromised that he could no longer get on a plane to go down to, see Naples, to, to visit Naples, Florida. And uh, one of my father's good friends, this guy named Jim Clark, uh, unfortunately passed away uh, a couple years ago, but Jim, very, very phenomenally successful in business, uh, owned his own construction company in D.C. And Jim, uh, Jim was a close friend of my father's, and my father was, again, the very last winter that my father had, Jim said, hey, I'll send my private jet up and I will fly you down to Naples so you can spend one more time uh, and visit those friends once more. Now, again, when I first heard about this, I'm like, well, I appreciate Mr. Clark doing this, but it seems like an awful big waste, uh, awful big waste of money for this. But for Jim, it was an extravagance that he could do to show his love for my father and to give my father a chance to do something he would not be able to do otherwise, say goodbye to those close friends that he had in Florida. I think about last month, and again, my good friend Chad Libertus, his mother passed away, and thankfully the funeral was on a Tuesday morning, so I was able to take time and go up there. But still, that was a last-minute plane flight, a car rental, uh, nine hours of driving uh, over the course of uh, 24, uh, a hotel room, uh, 
And it was a big expense uh, to go through. But again, that Monday night when I walked up and surprised Chad there, you know, he was overcome with emotion and just started crying. Give me a huge hug. It meant the world to him for me to be there. And I was happy to spend the money and to do that, even though I could have done other things with the money. I was happy to do that because I love him. He's one of my closest friends here, and I was happy to do it. When people have funeral expenses, funeral expenses, anyone who's gone through that, you know how expensive funerals can be, Um, especially if you end up going through the process of having a coffin and a burial and all those things. Uh, But even if it's just a reception or whatever it is you do, funerals can be very expensive. And yet, uh, for so many people, uh, it's an expense they don't think twice about spending. The chance to show how much they cared for the person who died, the chance to give the person a respectful burial, a chance to celebrate their lives with friends, it's core, it's a chance to celebrate love, the love that people have for one another. A type of love that gets heightened around the time of death. There's something about uh, the ultimate end facing us where it's like, you know what? I know this might not be the best, the wisest expenditure of resources, but sometimes when the end is right there, you know what? It's worth it. It's worth it as an expression of love. And I wonder, looking through this passage, what Jesus had done with this woman, what the relationship was, because uh, the disciples don't appear to recognize her. So she wasn't, you know, a groupie of Jesus's in any way, shape, or form. It doesn't appear as though Simon the leper necessarily recognizes this woman either. But clearly... There had been, Jesus had done something for her. I was trying to think about what it could be. Maybe it was, uh, maybe this woman was sort of lost and aimless in her life. Didn't know where to go. Maybe she was, uh, she felt perhaps she was suffering from depression or other things. And somehow Jesus' words might have called her back to God and given her uh, a renewed purpose, a renewed centered, centered focus. And that was so meaningful to her that she wanted to express her gratitude to Jesus. Or perhaps... Uh, you know, even though she was a woman of, of, of quite, a few, quite a bit of means, perhaps she was someone who still felt uh, as an outsider for one reason or another. And maybe Jesus' words reassured her that, no, you are a child of God. Or maybe she had a child who had been sick, perhaps close to death, and maybe Jesus had heal, healed that child. Creation for Jesus for that. One of the interesting things about funeral services when you go to them is that there are always individuals there uh, seemingly at random. There's, there are people who show up who make an effort to be there at a funeral because they want to pay their respects to someone who just passed away. And sometimes those relationships can be fairly tenuous. And it's interesting to, to think about and consider uh, what it was. Sometimes if, you're, if someone spent their life as a teacher, sometimes as a student that might have been a student 30 years ago. And that teacher made all the difference in that student's life. And the, when the student saw that the teacher had died, wanted to make the effort to show how much that student appreciated and loved uh, the teacher's efforts. Or maybe it could be, uh, you know, a friend, a childhood friend that you hadn't seen in, in decades. But still, uh, that impact on life made it worthwhile to show up. And sometimes it can be even more random than that. I... Uh, I told this story once a few years ago, but it's certainly relevant for this, is that there's a church member up in Iowa named Charles Knicker, 
Uh, Charles is from Texas originally, and his father uh, had been a bank teller. And uh, Charles was down in Texas, back in his hometown, and it was, a, it was around the time of his father's death, and he ran into a man uh, who, when he saw his last name, said, oh, you know, is so-and-so your father? And Charles had never met this man before in his life. And he said, yes, why? And he said, your father saved my life. And Charles is like, well, you know, I know my father pretty well, and he never mentioned saving, <laughs> saving your life. Uh, this is sort of random. What was, what was the story? And this man said, well, I was running, I had very hard times in my life, uh, particularly financial times for me and my family, and so I made the resolution to go rob a bank. And so I got a gun, and I got it with me, and I went to this bank to rob the bank. And your father was working at the bank that day, and he was working by the door. And I walked in, and he looked at me, and he could see that I was in a state of agitation, and he said, you don't look well. What's going on? Can I help you? Is there anything else? Is there anything I can do for you? And he said, your father's kindness shook me so much at that moment that I immediately abandoned my idea to rob the bank. I left. I threw away the gun and resolved to find some other way to solve my difficulties. He's like, if your father hadn't been there and showed that kindness at that one point, my life would have been forever different for both me and my family. One minor interaction, but forever changed this person's life. We're now into the period of Lent. And one of the things I've decided to do for Lent is to focus on the passion narrative of Jesus. That is, the, the narrative of Jesus' uh, suffering and death uh, during the time of Lent. Now, when I first mentioned this to someone, they were like, oh, <laughs> you'll have a congregation of two by the end of Lent <laughs> if you keep talking about these things. But I said, no. I said, listen, this is, this is a central point of all four Gospels. This is a central point of our faith. Uh, and more importantly, it's a central point of our lives. The things that are talked about in this narrative that we'll be discussing over the next six weeks, the things that we're talking about in this narrative are things that matter to us as deeply as any other. And the narrative is so artfully put together that it's worthwhile stepping into that narrative and seeing how it affects us and affects our lives as we walk on this journey. And as we begin the journey, there's that question of how are we, like Mary, touched by Jesus, such that at his death or at his impending death, how can we show our gratitude? I think about my own life. I mean, again, it's, it's one of these things. I, I'm as deeply flawed as anyone else. I, I, I own that 100%. Um, but also I can say firmly that my life has been changed by being a follower of Jesus. My perspective on other people, my perspective on compassion, my perspective on people's failings, the way I try to approach the world, the way I try to be more gracious to others. Uh, the fo- calling to follow Jesus brings me in community with other people. Uh, all these different things I find have changed my life and transformed who I am. Um, Jesus, is, Jesus has made a tremendous impact on me. I wonder what kind of impact he's made on you. As we read this story and as you contemplate the story in the week ahead, uh, I, I, I do put that challenge to you. That if you were in Mary's position, if you were there knowing that Jesus was about to die, how would you show your gratitude? How would you pay your respects? What extravagant gift might you make as a disciple of Jesus? It's a worthwhile thing to consider as we begin our Lenten journey.